Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to NYC Now, your source for local news in and around New York City from WNYC. It's Wednesday, May 24th. Here's the midday news from Michael Hill. Doctors in training at Elmhurst Hospital will go back to work tomorrow morning after negotiating an end to their strike with residency program administrators. The union representing more than 160 doctors in the hospital's residency program, which is run by the Mount Sinai Health System, says officials have agreed to 18 percent raises for residents over the next three years. Among other provisions, the union says this puts an end to almost a year of negotiations. Mount Sinai says the new agreement is fair and reasonable while also putting patients and the residents' educations first. New York City officials say an estimated more than 600 migrants are arriving every day, and that's getting expensive. Budget Director Jacques Jihad says city services could be cut even more if the federal government fails to provide more money. Every New Yorker should be concerned about these escalating costs and the ramifications for potential service disruptions and the very real possibility that this may go on for years. The city already is planning to slash budgets for services, including its libraries and meals for seniors. The city does have a $2 billion rainy day fund for unexpected needs it can draw on. Despite declaring a state of emergency, Mayor Adams has not moved to tap into that fund. 69 right now with a mix of sun and clouds out there. Sunny in the city and 75 today with a light wind. Chance of showers late tonight, low of 50 and gusty. And then tomorrow, sunny and 68, breezy. Friday, sunny and 73. The holiday weekend is looking dry, sunny. Temperatures in the 70s, Saturday and Sunday and 80 on Memorial Day. 69 now. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A New York Times and the Marshall Project investigation finds a culture of abuse and cover-ups among state corrections officers. The report analyzed data from more than 290 cases in which the corrections department tried to fire guards or supervisors over claims they were abusing prisoners. They also looked at lawsuits over claims of excessive force that the state lost or settled in the decade leading up to 2020. Alicia Santo co-reported the story, and she joins us now. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Tell us what your reporting found. 
So um, we reviewed previously secret records uh, that we obtained from the Department of Corrections, and we wanted to see how guards were disciplined over a period of about 10 years for um, what the state called inmate abuse. So this would mean physical abuse of people covering up that abuse and also some other types of um, abuse, which we described in this story. And we found that um, for all of the efforts that the state made to fire um, about almost 300 cases we looked at where they attempted to fire the officer, the state succeeded in actually firing that officer in only 10% of those cases. And um, this is something that was not, you, you could not find out about this previously. Um, these records had been a secret under New York state law until the law changed in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd. So this is a system that has not been analyzable until, um, you know, now, basically. You tell the story of Chad Stambro. Would you walk us through this situation? Sure. So um, Mr. Stambro was serving a 10-year sentence for stealing a television and violating parole. And he was being held at the Fishkill Correctional Facility, which is uh, right near Beacon, New York. And he had been taken to a dental clinic at a local hospital for um, treatment for a dislocated jaw. Um, And he got agitated during the surgery. He tried to pull away, knocked over a monitor. And when he woke up, he testified in court that one of the officers was pressing a knee into his neck. And at that point, he was paralyzed. Um, Now, there's pictures of him from the hospital showing him... um, uh, you know, laying back in a chair, unable to move. He was brought out to the car, lifted into the van by the corrections officers and driven back to the prison where he was eventually sent to the hospital. Um, We highlight this story because the officers didn't write about any injuries in their use of force reports. In fact, the officer accused of pressing a knee into Mr. Stanrow's neck um, didn't even fill out a use of force report until um, several days later when he was asked to. And what they wrote was that he had complied and gotten into the van. But what was different about this event than events that typically, you know, that could happen inside of the prison, this happened at a hospital, was that there was video in the parking lot that showed the officers lifting Mr. Stambro into a van and showing that he was unable to get into the van on his own. And this all came out during a lawsuit and in in a trial in which, uh, Mr. Sandro was awarded over $2 million uh, for the injuries he suffered, and the officers actually admitted that they had, you know, left him out of their reports, that they had said he climbed into the van when he actually hadn't. Um, and so this story really told one example, of which there are so many, of where officers covered up what they had done in their reports, um, and somebody suffered a very, very serious injury from the force that was used. Tell us about who works these sorts of jobs as corrections officers. What kind of training and support do they receive? Well, New York State has uh, 16,000 corrections officers approximately. Um, This is a state where a very, very strong union um, for the corrections officers. They receive plenty of training. They're well-trained. They're um, well-compensated, especially when you compare to what corrections officers make in other states. Um, And uh, this is a very strong unit um, of officers. They have, uh, some people make 
well over 100,000 and they work really hard for that. They spend a lot, a lot of time working in the prison and doing overtime. So it's a really, really tough job. And it's something, one of the reasons that we think this is so important to look at is we recognize that lots of officers do not do this. But the point is the ones that do, it gets covered up and it's part of a culture that exists um, inside the Department of Corrections that has been incredibly difficult, it seems, for officials to, um, to get rid of. It seems in these sorts of stories, the guards themselves are often put under the microscope, but the larger systemic structures that allow this sort of violence are rarely scrutinized, nor are the people responsible for hiring, training, and oversight. Do you think there are larger policy issues at play here? One of the things that's really important in this particular setup is that there is a contract that lays out the way that discipline occurs. And this has so many protections for the corrections officers that it it often tilts in their favor. And that is something that can really affect a culture inside of a prison when people can get away with this. And the thing is that I always try to keep in mind because it really explains the human dynamics behind it is that when you work in a prison, it's an incredibly stressful job and people are covering each other's backs because it works, right? Like at the end of the day, um, the fact that the union fights to keep people's jobs and they win is also saying a lot about the Department of Corrections and their ability to uh, document these cases and their ability, their even their willingness to go after cases. Because as we had noted, there was 88% of the paid lawsuits didn't have a corresponding discipline um, that we saw in the database we had obtained. And so there's there's the cases where they can't fire people, and then there's all the cases they don't even try. And all of that adds up to a situation where it, accountability, people do get away with this, and that's why the pattern continues. Alicia Santos, a staff writer with the Marshall Project. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This is NYC Now from WNYC. Be sure to catch us every weekday, three times a day, for your top news headlines and occasional deep dives. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. More this evening.